Welcome to Machine Learning. Okay, so I want to talk about some thoughts for the week. First, I want to talk about the value of a data warehouse. One of the primary values that you have of a data warehouse is centralizing your uh, query query extraction functionality, or in other words, your SQLs. So take all the SQLs that run your company, and they're all fragmented. They're all over the place. And they're giving different perspectives and different levels of aggregation into your data. Um, but they're not generalized for trend. So, for example, let's say you're trying to figure out um, change orders or something, and you want to see the different states that the the order went through in the pipeline. And so you can break them up into different stages, and so you'd have different uh, values that represent stages in the transactions. Maybe, for example, you'd have a date, and that would tell you when that that uh, change order had been processed. And also, you might want to look at pending change orders, or change orders that didn't have uh, pending approval. They just went straight in as a change order. That's an example of state in the data. Now, one of the things that's hard to do is to pull all that data out because you're, you know, you're looking at that state data or data at particular times, and maybe you don't care about um, when it's a certain condition, like it's it's in transition. Maybe you're waiting for price submissions from the subcontractor. And, uh, and so there's an estimation stage, and then you receive those estimations, then there's a interfacing stage, and then maybe the final thing is there's approval stage. And so you need to distinguish between each one of those stages the data. Well, you can do that very easily by segmenting your data and then labeling it. And that can be done inside of a data warehouse. And so then once you have that segmented data, you can run queries against it. Now one of the advantages of the data warehouses is the joins between the dimensions and the fact table are one-to-one. And so that you would do it by a, sur- a surrogate key to that dimension. And so your joins are a single field. Now, it's interesting in Power BI, they do the same thing. You can't do a join between tables on multiple keys. You have to take your keys and, and merge them together into one key kind of like a hash key. 
and that's in Power Query. So I'm about 50% of the way through my Power BI coursework. I've seen a lot of value in it, and the data that they want you to set up is in the form of a star configuration. Now you can also do, one of the things that you can do is change the join relationship from single to both. And the reason you would do that is that you want to have the dimensions, if you just select the dimension uh, that's across the fact table, let's say between dimension A, fact table, dimension B, you want that to also change too. So the dimensions are changing as you select uh, values in the dimension through the fact table. And that's called a both relationship. I know quite a bit now about Power BI, a lot more than I, I did when I first started my coursework. It's taken me a little while because all of a sudden I've got really busy and uh, I'm doing uh, a .NET Core project and I'm also doing a lot of analysis and I'm fixing reports and I'm writing queries and I'm doing data camp and I'm reading a Python book and I'm looking at trig trigonometry and I have to do my daily walks for my health reasons. So I'm really busy right now. More busy than I've ever been. And one of the things that, again, I, what I will emphasize if you're not doing this already, is start to document process. Because as you start to document process, all of a sudden you see all of these areas in the business that need improved. Not just a little improvement, a lot of improvement. And so one of the big ideas is to, you know, acquire tools. And those, that's great because companies have thought about these processes and built tools and those tools do help. But uh, they uh, they can be very uh, expensive and complex to understand. But I really believe that the key to surviving is uh, understanding process and using the right tools to manage manage those processes. Because businesses are running tight, I listen to the project managers and people, and they need to have information. All right, let me move off of that and talk about machine learning. One of the things that I'm starting to wonder is 
if machine learning can help analyze how things are, are functioning in a company, could you could you show a machine all of your design documentation and could it learn from that design do documentation and then make suggestions on how to improve the efficiency? Would that be possible? Um, that would be interesting to, to learn if you could create that level of sophistication. And so then machines could start helping implement process. I wonder, like, if, the, if we're going to live in kind of a Star Trek world. You know, at some point the, com the computer was doing all the programming. You didn't see a thousand programmers on the Enterprise. You saw one Berkeley or Wesley Crusher, and they were like more like systems engineers. They were routing things from one system into another. They were connecting systems. They are activating processes. They're interacting with the computer. And they kind of had this idea of a systems view of how the machinery worked and how things could come together uh, activate the warp drive, activate the um, navigation system. And if you remember, it was the traveler who really liked Wesley Crusher. I don't know why Wesley Crusher became such an important key member, but he hadn't gone to the Federation Academy and yet he was operating the flagship enterprise. Go figure. But I guess Picard felt that Crusher was extremely talented and he was best friends with his father. And, you know, when you have those kind of relationships, you, you give people chances that you normally wouldn't give for non-qualified people. So it kind of shows you how Picard thought. And also kind of the privileged status that Crusher got because he helped him in a couple of missions. And he was kind of like the boy wonder. But, you know, never, in no episodes did Picard and Crusher ever um, become like a father-son even though there were some episodes where it kind of applied that Picard might be fatherly, Picard always kind of dismissed, dismissed it, kind of wiped it off his sleeve. You can learn a lot from analyzing Star Trek. It's interesting because I like the older versions because I thought they taught an interesting morality about some of the things that we face today in technology. And perhaps these are also some of the things that we're facing now. I mean, we have our tricorder, kind of. Your iPhone analyzes your biometrics. It doesn't analyze the samples around you. It can't do 
Well, it's got LIDAR, and, like, and LIDAR can analyze objects. It can tell you what an object is by the LIDAR scan. Uh, you can create models with it, so we kind of have, like, VR holodeck capability. It costs money. You know, to get a VR system, you have to have the headset, you have to have the the scanner, you have to have the NVIDIA GPU rendering machine. The components are, are somewhat expensive. You know, that's why I thought for a long time that maybe Magic Glasses was going to be the kind of the replacement. You would have augmented reality. You could take the images. It had, you could render them. So Maybe in some ways we, we will have a tricorder as in the form. Maybe Samsung will build the tricorder. They'll get a, they'll, maybe there'll be a, someone watching Star Trek and say, we ought to build this tricorder. It analyzes air samples. It can analyze water samples. It can scan biological. And you know, the era of IoT, Internet of Things. Tricorder could even power um, small devices. You know, it's interesting that we have so much power right now just in our handhelds. And Lots of information. I have an iPhone 8, and I haven't upgraded because it's a thousand, over a thousand dollars upgrade. But my wife is constantly complaining about her iPhone and wants to upgrade. Not enough storage. But these are reasons why people continue to like technology. Is it gives us kind of that Star Trek experience. You know, at what point do you have a comm system where you tap, maybe on your iWatch, and you can talk to the people you want to? I mean, you don't have to say, hey, Siri, call this person. No, you just start talking, and it knows who you're, you need to talk to. Uh, well, you notice that they when they tap, they usually are talking to your, uh, or some, let's see, who is the other communication officer? I don't remember now on the next generation. Um, I was looking at this one where they were Berkeley, where they uh, um, they analyzed people's dreams. The computer was analyzing people's dreams. You know, I didn't realize how powerful computers were 
for analyzing breathing pattern and brain pattern until my daughter did a sleep study on me and told me about some of my breathing episodes. The machine analyzed it. And she just connected a device to my wrist and it could analyze my breathing patterns at night. And it was pretty amazing, if you ask me. But as a consequence of that analysis, I bought a CPAP machine. And that was been a lifesaver. Because I was always tired wasn't getting really good sleep and I was always tired but I didn't have any explanation uh, for it you know diet anxiety etc Um, cars. You know, it's almost $6 a gallon gas. How are people getting around? I mean, eventually I think you're going to start seeing cars on the side of the road because people run out of gas. Um, I watched a couple of cars when they filled up. Like, you'd only put in a few dollars, it seemed like, or a few gallons of gas, because it's so expensive. I mean, you put three gallons of gas in, you're almost at $20. So, you know, are people running their cars on near empty all the time? When I when I go to fill my car now, it's over $50, 40 pushing $50. And that's for a half tank. You know, it's painful to pay $100 every time you go to the pump. Is it necessary? No, I think we need to take a serious look at why we are part of the world oil conglomeration called OPEC. We shouldn't have any oil that we need to depend on from Saudi Arabia. Especially when you look at big populations like India, where their number one importer of oil is the Middle East. So as India and China's populations grow and demand more oil, that will only cause oil prices to go higher. Get off of international oil. And let's just do our energy independence, our freedom. Because buying oil from the Middle East makes no long-term sense. And why export our oil when we can use it locally? 
domestically. So many things that we have done that have created a huge problem, as I've highlighted in our trade deficit. Instead of manufacturing goods and products for the U.S., we manufactured goods and products for the world, but we took jobs that were important in America and we watched as China began its rapid industrialization around the year 2000 and for several decades watched everything move to China. Manufacturing was fleeing the U.S. and moving to China. And now China has gained that position and we have these incredible trade deficits where they finance our debt and we're maxed out. And economists that say, oh, it's good for the world economy. Yeah, maybe that debt is good for the world economy because it creates jobs, but it's still debt and you have to pay that interest. And as any of you know, interest compounds and it becomes expensive and it becomes a burden. And even as you're your capacity to earn increases, it is immediately consumed by that interest. Interest kills growth. So I would say the trade deficit is both inflationary and it also strangulates growth. And so if we move into a recession, it's largely due to large trade deficits. So what will happen then is we realize that we're in a large trade deficit. You know, we had Trump saying, bring American jobs home. It was great. We did need to bring American jobs home. But now he's gone. We don't have anyone saying that anymore. So now we have to rely on the forces of economics. And they do have a gravity. Trade deficits are not sustainable. Huge government debt is not sustainable. $28 trillion. At $35 trillion, we will not have the tax base to even pay our interest payment. And by definition, that is default. So then if you have that case, you could have dollars returning back, sell off of dollars, and that's called hyperinflation. I think you're going to start seeing more economists talk hyperinflation. I know the naked capitalists are, uh, yeah, I think it was called the naked capitalists, that uh, they were running articles a decade ago on hyperinflation. I was reading those, 2012, and they were warning about the bad debts in China. Well, you know, it takes a long time for this stuff to hit. It doesn't happen immediately. They have, the central banks have been accumulating lots of gold and they, they, they win. They're like the house. They will get their money. They'll hold it in hard assets and when things start to panic and crash, they will have those hard assets to survive those 
those uh, catastrophic events. And then they'll rebuild. And they'll offer their gold-backed currencies. And yet, you know, that will, at the time, will look like a, the, the way out. So why aren't we get, accumulating precious metals now? Well, we don't see the sense in it. Even today, people talk about it doesn't make sense to have precious metal. You can't make money off of gold. You can't make money off of silver. You can't make money off of platinum platinum, or platinum. Platinum and platinum. And so, because there are these biases, and some of it is, yes, it's factual that precious metals fluctuate. I mean, I if you look at uh, silver prices, you know, silver prices haven't gone to $100 in my lifetime. I saw it go to $50 an ounce, almost $50, but it's never gone to 100 So we have these biases that seem to be sustainable over time. Are they true? Well, that's where you have to think like Socrates. You have to use your reasoning, build your models, understand how money works. I have a book that I'm writing called The Way the World Works. And I'm just waiting for the feeling to release that book. But it's highlighted a lot of the problems that I've been talking about right now. And they are problems, and we should talk about them. We should have honest discussion. Don't get caught in the complexity of day-to-day living and ignore what is really happening. Well, then economists will say, well, what really is happening? Explain that. Well, we have to separate pseudo-economists from real economists. Because you can analyze the data and you can know from the data what's happening. And if you have certain models that you believe in and then you only model what you believe in, then that's what I would call pseudo-economics. But as you're... uh, you know, you're in the era now of data, and you have tools to analyze that data. So that, you know, that capacity to understand what's happening in the world is changing. You can't, you don't necessarily have to go to your favorite economist or your favorite think tank to figure out what is happening in the economy. You can do your own data analysis, you can do your own data think, and figure out what's happening. And I think people are doing that. Well, and you look at the, who is the largest population in the world? It's India. I was surprised. It's not China, it's India. But what's happening to the Indian economy? You know, I have a buddy, he's a 
he's working in data science now and he's trying to figure out um, what's going to happen in his future and he doesn't like India he will not go back there and live so if he won't go back and live in India why is he so optimistic about India's future well largely won't go back there because of corruption no opportunity the caste system caste systems corrupt and you know if you look at government taxation then you add 30% on top of that for corruption it's very hard to survive in India if you're an Indian programmer which I've talked to many Indian programmers get out of India well where would you go go where the money is and that's why a lot of Indian programmers have come got their visas come to the US through education got their degrees stay here get extensions on their visas and work for half price I saw that with uh, Chinese students and Indian students and I was actually realized this is the wrong company for me too late but those are some of those serious problems that come from that mentality with H-1B that's why if I were an employee I would not work in a for a company that was highly promoting H-1B employment because either they're looking to save money and labor at the expense of long-term continuity and skill sets and institutional knowledge buildup or they're looking to have transitory labor where labor is um, constantly in flux where you're hiring people firing people uh, shifting people around and systems are changing all the time so in those type of systems you could almost say well we'll outsource a large chunks of functionality and that's what my buddy's doing he's working with Indian programmers that are chunked out to do specific types of functionality they pay a certain amount of few million dollars to do certain levels of functionality in return they um, leverage that functionality and the company makes 20x so yeah does it make sense to do that does it make sense to hire Indian programmers and do that level of functionality yes is it good for the Indian programmers yeah they make a paycheck 
do they work for a company long term this way? Do they get a retirement? No. How are they going to survive into the future? Caste system is what they believe. Son, take care of them. Daughter, take care of them. Not going to happen. That tradition is breaking. Why? Because there is no long-term stability in fragmented employment. The only way you're going to gain stability is by saving. But how are you going to save when things are becoming more and more expensive through inflation, where you have political processes who don't care? They will increase the money supply for their own purposes, or they will increase interest rates and sell off the U.S. Treasury for their own purposes. You can't control that. And so then you're left to ask, what do I do now? You have to own assets. It goes back to a famous book that I read called Net Assets. At the end of the day, when you're 65, 70, 80, look at what your net assets are. I'm talking about the assets that you can sell, land, a home, precious metals, food. It has to be commodity-based. Like Jim Rogers said, you need to understand three things, bonds, commodities, and stocks. And bonds, you could say any U.S. dollar-denominated security. And then you'll understand the way the world works. And that's why I'm waiting on my book. I've highlighted those areas. I listen to Jim Rogers. Jim Rogers is in Singapore. Billionaire, left, took his money, went to Singapore, got out of the dollar, probably is in the dollar now, who knows. I don't know if Jim's still alive, talked to him once, billionaire. But at the time he was telling me, he felt the dollar was going to get stronger and interest rates were going to go up. Well, yeah, under Greenspan they did. I think they had a number of 40 consecutive periods of meetings where interest rates went up. Oh, it went up, all right. Then the economy crashed. Then the politicians moved in, and interest dropped to near 2%. I thought it was actually going to go to 1%. But they could have basically paid off of all that debt. They could have paid off a lot of mortgages. No, went to the banks. So as interest rates are rising, let's say by the end of 2024, the interest rates are now up to 8%. And now people are going, boy, these these, uh, $600,000 homes are (coughs) too much to finance for your month to month. We need to have larger down payments. (coughs) 
to get your monthly payment down, and even then your monthly payment will be expensive. And the banks are saying, well, we've got to hedge our risk against inflation. We need to have higher interest rates. We adjust our loans to the prime rate. How are, how are new families going to get into homes? Well, we hope that we don't repeat the subprime crisis of the 90s under political pressure, which created the mortgage-backed security and the MBOs, mortgage-backed obligations, And the CDS, Consolidated Debt Security, your insurance policies on the, the bonds that they won't default in case of default. And those type of things create crisis. And politicians are not good at thinking. They really aren't. We put them at the head. They make laws. They make regulations. But a lot of times, it creates a bigger mess than it helps. So I'm not very uh, optimistic that politicians are going to solve the problem, even though they always claim that they can solve the problem. It has to come down to the value of the money. Your time or your money and what that money can buy. That's what it comes down to. If it costs you $100 to eat dinner and you only make $60 for the day, you have a money problem. And a lot of the world operates on 65% of their money going to pay for eating food. Incredible. Which means that in these countries that have that situation, the income is very low. Now, when you add inflation to that, now it means that instead of 65, it might be 85% of their money is going to. And it's not a sustainable pattern. And so that's why I say in India, this idea of caste system taking care of the old is going to break if it isn't already. And just like in Japan where real estate prices, like I talked about in the podcast, where the Imperial Gardens were worth as much as the state of California, then you start to see the absurdity of the currency imbalances, the effect of government policy weakening the currencies. So maybe you will see the prophecy of Daniel where all governments of the earth crash. Now why did they crash? Because of inflation. Trade deficits. Trade deficits are bad. Bring our jobs home. Made in America. I want to see that again. Made in America. I like Ford, but Ford has lots of 
manufacturing plants all over the world. You know, I want to see it made in America. And I want it to be cheap. And I want it to be made by robots in many parts because that's the way of the future. And I want to see technology being built in America that's used throughout the world to bless humanity.